Hi there, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Let's see. It is, uh, what time is it? It is uh, 3.05 p.m. East Coast time here on the 22nd of June, 2023. And this is episode 161 of the Luke Thomas live chat. I am <clears throat> aforementioned Luke Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it here today. Let's see. We have a lot to get to today. We have... Uh, Ooh, we got UFC and ABC5 this weekend. We've got some bantamweight matchmaking. We've got some, uh, probably some dead rich people uh, down at the bottom of the ocean, maybe. I don't know. That, that part's a little bit unclear. We have a lot to get to today. So thumbs up if you're watching. Please hit subscribe if you'd be so kind. I appreciate everybody tuning in. Reminder, right? Actually, you know what? Let's do this. Let's get this party started, and then we'll get to all the reminders and all the fun stuff. So let's go. Uh, okay, so reminders, thumbs up, hit subscribe. A couple things going on. We're going to get more questions out of the little live chat window, and we'll try to rely a little bit less on the ones that you guys put in ahead of time. So if you uh, would like to get a question in at any point, we'll get to them at the end. Obviously, I'll, I'll prioritize a little bit of time for them. But if you want to get in any kind of donation and attach a question to it in the Super Chat, you certainly may. We'll do Super Chats only at the end, but if you want to do a follow-up in real time, we can do that there. Also, we have a poll up right now. Who is going to win the main event for UFC on ABC5? Is it going to be Ilya Taporia or is it going to be Josh Emmett? Vote now, and then we'll go over the results at the end of today's podcast. Yeah, and by the way, subscribers only can, can participate in the chat, and hey, you don't have to. You're under no obligation. You can watch or listen to this however you like, but uh, it costs you nothing. It costs you nothing to subscribe, so please give that a consideration if you would. I just had some bubble tea with my daughter. It was pretty good. My go-to is I get the green tea, and then I uh, I get a, I get you know almost no sugar in it, and then I put uh, some strawberries and then some of the boba, like tapioca things. It's pretty fun. Pretty fun to drink those. All right. Nobody cares. Um. I think that's it for today's stuff ahead of time. Yeah. All right. Let's get this party started, shall we? Let's pull this up. Add to the stream. We'll do it on that side. There we are. Okay. I think we already have a bunch of uh, super chats. Good Lord. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Othello will let me know when there is a one we want to get to. So with that being said... Let's do. Let's start here. Uh, Luke, do you think you and BC would do a special show similar to how you do a resume review, talking about the recent generation of 155-pound action fighters and some of the most special fights uh, and moments that happened along the way? I know BC mentioned them as the four horsemen of violence in reference to Poirier, Gaethje, Alvarez, and Chandler, but also would love to hear you guys talk about Ferguson, Habib, and Oliveira if you could, especially Ferguson, because there seems to be a lot of attempts at revisionist history with him and just how good he was in his career. It's crazy how perception can change in just a few short years. Yeah, I'd be interested in doing something like that, although it would have to be centered on them. I don't know that I'd be up for right, up for doing some kind of video on, like, does this weight class uniquely produce, you know, action fighters? Because obviously it doesn't, but does it produce them in more number? That's sort of a weirder, kind of a silly question. Rather, how did we get to that part where the where, where these forces all converged in one weight class at one time? Poirier coming from 145 to 155, having some fits and starts, and then really moving into his own. Gaethje, obviously, in World Series of Fighting, he moves over, has his own revolution. 
Uh, let's see. Chandler comes over late but has an immediate impact. And Alvarez was a Bellator champion, the first to come over before Chandler. And he obviously had some fits and starts, but he became champion as well. Like you could really talk about how they all intersected at the UFC at the same time. And that made it for something special. You could do it for Ferguson, Habib, and Oliveira too, although it's a little bit different. But um, sure, I'd be interested in it. This, there's all kinds of sort of stories I want to do on this um, that are of this ilk. I don't know that Brian and I would sit down together to do this one, but I might like to do this one in essay form. All right. Um, it's an interesting question. I don't know that I have like a great response for it. Unfortunately, I, I'm not sure what there is to say. It's a good question, which is, am I the only one who thinks it's absolutely insane that Sanhagen is fighting Umar Nurmagomedov and Chito Vera is the one fighting Cejudo? Sanhagen beat Cheeto and gets to fight the number 11th ranked hammer Umar that nobody wants to fight. Cheeto loses to Sandhagen and gets to fight the former champion Cejudo, who is ahead in the rankings. What happened here? I have a feeling that they couldn't get anyone to fight Nurmagomedov except Sandhagen. Um, that there was just no one to do that with. And I guess they could have offered Cejudo to Sandhagen. Like, here's the thing. If you had the idea, and most people had the idea that they that these are fine fights, that Sanhagen versus Nurmagomedov and Chito versus Cejudo, in either case, these are perfectly fine fights. But maybe as to the argument that you're making, maybe they could be repaired and they'd be even better and they'd make more sense, which I don't think is a bad argument really at all. Rather, you have to realize that when it's kind of that obvious that the matchmakers know that too, Right. Uh, and if they can't get that outcome, then there has to be a very specific reason for it that somebody did decline to fight, two different people declined to fight, that like, yes, they wanted the other permutation first, but they, for whatever reason, couldn't get it. So they, then they went to this one second or third or whatever. However, further down the line, this went relative to the idealized version of what they wanted. When you talk to matchmakers, that's just a common problem. It's like, yeah, we wanted to do that, but so-and-so said we couldn't. We had to save so-and-so for this date. This person said they wouldn't fight them, and so they have to go to something else. There's just no way they ended up here because they thought – I'd be extremely skeptical that they ended up here because they thought this was the absolute best way to go. I think they ended up here because this is the best way to go, dot, 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 given the circumstances of what they were able to meaningfully arrange. Um. That's that's the best answer I can give you. I can almost guarantee that's what happened. The real question is, who declined? What were they trying to do? What what really got in the way of that? I think that will ultimately be the lesson. But it's not because the matchmakers, it just didn't occur to them. I'd be very, very surprised if that was true. Okay, all right, here we go. It's a good question. Has Sergio Pettis surpassed Anthony Pettis, at least in terms of fighting ability and skill? Um... That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I have to think more about that a little bit. Let me pull up their resumes for just a second, just so I can have see them in front of me. And I'll share them with you here in just a second. Uh, throw Anthony Pettis. BC is so bitter at me. <laughs> There's this video. You guys know who the comedian Sam Morell is? He's really funny. I really like his comedy. It's really dry, deadpan kind of humor. But he's very, very, he's very clever. I guess he was on Rogan's show. I don't know if it was recent or in the last year or something. But he talks about getting run off stage trying to do a show in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And then they both take a dump on Connecticut. And I sent the clip to BC. And now he's real bitter. <laughs> he's real bitter. 
He's like texting me. Well, no one about Connecticut. It's fucking hilarious. All right. So let's look at Pettis's record. How old is Pettis? Pettis currently, uh, Anthony Pettis, that is. He's currently 36. So let's shave off about seven years. So that would put us at what, 2016? So let's go to 2016 on this guy. And where would he be? He'd be about 19 and six, right? So then let's pull up Sergio Pettis. Again, that's obviously, these are very imprecise ways of doing this, but I'm just sort of pointing it out. Okay. So let me pull this up here real quick. Like, all right. So here is Sergio's uh, record 23 and five. His best wins, I think, are his last three Juan Archuleta, Kyoji Horiguchi, and Patricio Pitbull. Um, he has the losses to Font, Formiga, and Cejudo previously back in 2017. He has the win over Joseph Benavidez, which actually aged pretty well. He's got a win over the former champ, granted, some time ago. John Moraga, who's a very good fighter. And then these ones, Chris Curiaso and Chris Kalidis are okay. You know, these are just respectable wins, but nothing super impressive. And then the rest of these, you know, Yatsen Meza and Matt Hobar, these are not especially difficult wins, judging by the highest standard anyway. So his best wins would be what? It would be Carriasso, you could add in there because he fought for a title, but I wouldn't really put his name up there. Moraga, yes. Moreno, yes. Benavidez, yes. And then these last three. So five good wins, one world title. That's, I mean, I'm saying five good wins, five very, very good wins, and then in one elite title, I would consider. So on the Pettis side, if we're going just based on 2016 backwards, he would have already had the title back in here. He would have wins over Danny Castillo. Going back to WC, Danny Castillo. That's I won. Alex Carolexis, he beat the shit out of. Um, who, of course, on the Ultimate Fighter Season 1. Shane Roller, who was an All-American, I think, multiple times at the University of Oklahoma. And then he beat Benson Henderson for the lightweight championship. He lost to Clay Guida. He got out-wrestled. Wins over Stevens, Lausanne, Cerrone, Henderson, Melendez. So I consider the Melendez win. I consider he's got the Oliveira win up here as well. He's got a few good ones here. Yeah, but that's... Still up there in 2016. So he's got the Oliveira win. We're not going to count Jim Miller just for the purposes of this exercise. Melendez, Henderson. Um, yeah, because by this point, he did have... I see. Okay. And then you add up here with the extra ones. He's got some different ones here. And they're fairly commensurate. I mean, I think the thing that would separate them a little bit is, one, uh, Sergio's not done. I think Sergio's in the best spot in his career. I, I mean, after what he did to Pitbull, I don't know how you could say otherwise. Now, he might still lose to Patchy Mix because Patchy Mix is a beast. But these last three wins, Juan Archuleta um, beating Pitbull and beating Horiguchi, which, again, I realize he was losing that fight until he wasn't. But he still put his lights out, and that counted. It wasn't an accidental throw. He didn't just luck into it. He intended to throw it. He did, and it landed. Boom. Those wins are just remarkable, and he's not done adding to it. I think the fact that, like, even within the similar kind of time frame about where they were athletically by age 29 or so, Pettis had two world titles at that point. He had one in WEC, and then he got another one in UFC. Um, actually, no, sorry, he didn't have it by that point. By 2016, did he? Yes, yes, he did. I'm sorry. He loses it to RDA in 2015. So, yes, he got beat. The, he got RDA fucked him up proper in 2015. So, I'm still going to say big Pettis, but... In terms of like what they accomplished, but in terms of overall skill, they're a little bit different too. Anthony's a little bit more devastating of a striker, particularly with his kicks. Whereas I think Sergio is a little bit more of a sort of a contact and get out of the way kind of guy, touch and not get touched. So there's some meaningful differences there too. There's a lot of differences between them, despite obviously being brothers. Um, I'm going to say so far, slightly Pettis, uh, Anthony ahead. 
but I might say Sergio has the more well-rounded skill set. I think certainly on the ground, he has a much more like obviously Pettis is really clever with his guard, but even like the Benson Henderson arm bar that he got in their rematch that came after hitting him with a body kick and then going underneath for that. So, like, you know, uh the I would still say ground games, Sergio is gonna be a little bit better on the feet, Anthony a little bit better. Anthony doing a little bit more with that up to this point, but I think Sergio might pass him in the end. Okay. Let's go to the next one. Shall we? If Mighty Mouse beat Cejudo at 227, do you think Dana would have followed through with threats to close flyweight? Probably. I think, yeah. I mean, I think it made it easier that he lost, but they still might have done it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, glad you asked. Very good. Thoughts on the Titanic sub situation? It goes without saying that I hope they are found alive. Yeah, that's not going to happen. But it's a truly frightening prospect to be trapped in a metal container several miles below the ocean surface in total darkness. And not just that, I, I, we don't know. I mean, I guess the latest is that they found a debris field, right? They found a debris field, and so that could be that at some point something inside the sub broke. It must have been crushed instantaneously or pretty close to instantaneously, and then everybody died, and then what they got is floating to the surface. I mean, I just don't see any way that they make it at this point. I mean... They don't even know where they are. They've heard the banging in the place where there was like where they thought the it's near the wreckage, but they it's not like they've made eye contact at any point with even any kind of instrumentation. They don't have any clue where they are. I made this meme. I haven't posted it yet because I realize like we're all still in a stage where, um, you know, it's listen. I mean, people are going to be people are losing their lives, and I realize we're in an age where no one cares about like dead billionaires. And I'm not asking you to, but at the same time, you know, people are dying. But I made this meme. I haven't posted it yet. I'll show it here, which I realize is not the same as, like, you want to know, you want to know my take on it. Here's my take on it. This is my take, right? It says science slash doing your own research. There's my take. I haven't posted it yet, but there's my meme. I feel bad that these guys are pretty much going to be, if they're not dead yet, they almost certainly will be. And they've probably been dead for some time based on what we can tell. But, dude, like, this fucking guy who was with this company made, like, almost mocked the notion of safety. Like, yeah, you got to break some rules. you got to be entrepreneurial. you got to go out there and shake it up. All of these, like, meaningless platitudes, these meaningless words that he's putting out there as this kind of way to appeal to your a spirit of adventurism to go out there and try absolutely recklessly insane shit. And, dude, there's more people you know, that have made it to the moon and back than where these fucking guys are going and trying to get back. You know what I mean? Like, you're just, I mean, you're just talking about something that would require clear, clear federal oversight. These Ocean Gate breaking Coast Guard rules, not just once. Um, this, this device they were in, not checked by any regulatory agency, nothing. Like, this is one of those moments where people say, oh, well, you know, what can the government do for you? It can do shit like this. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not one of these guys that tells you, like, oh, the government is your best friend. They can do everything you want. But, like, people want to say it's it's, it's effective. Uh, it's ineffective, excuse me, and it doesn't work. Bullshit. Here's a great area. Like, there's you know, the, the, one of the major reasons why there aren't as many airplane crashes as there could be is because there is a regulatory agency, numerous of them worldwide, who have worked to iron out through trial and error and also through experimental, sorry, I should say, through expert testimony and uh, other methods a series of ways in order to maintain a fleet, in order to have coordinated flights, in order to avoid crashing into one another, in an effort to avoid overcrowded 
runways, any number of things. And of course, the system is imperfect. We've all had our own situations. But you know, it's the safest form of travel on earth. That's not an accident. It's because there are experts in play with the force of government to make rules that make all of this much better in the process, right? Like without that, you would get a much worse system. Oh, a private inter uh, enterprise could do that. Get the fuck out of here with that nonsense. Not everything has to have a private motive, excuse me, a profit motive in order to function at its best. In fact, they can often be a, a relatively corrupting force. So here is a clear case where if there was a regulatory agency that could have overseen some of this stuff and checked it and, you know, for example, like the one of the guys who is a, one of the billionaires on this who uh, unfortunately it looks like is if not dead yet going to be dead soon he had gone into space with jeff bezos for that what's it called like blue horizon or whatever whatever the name of his company is now obviously going into space is not a endeavor without risk as well and of course you know not like uh, nasa rockets haven't blown up before of course that they have but rather that if you're going to go into space flight this is a you know having the oversight of nasa essentially in play here to monitor the parameters of any kind of space travel that you do, it's probably going to be much safer that way. And he had done that. That one doesn't seem so crazy to me. I mean, I don't know if you or I would do that, if we, even, even if we had the money, but there is a clear case where oversight, regulatory oversight, clearly plays a role in human safety. Clearly, right? So this guy, this fucking Jamoke, laughs in the face of safety, laughs in the face of concerns, and... You know, I admire his enterprising spirit to want to go and do crazy things in that way. I mean, I think you need people like that to shake up status quo at times, but there's a right way and a wrong way. And then you're just sort of jerry-rigging this thing with an on button, the Logitech controller, and a few other things. I mean, this is a deeply unserious way I mean, of doing very, very difficult. I mean, probably one of the most difficult things to do on Earth, especially even when the, their considerable budget on that budget itself, like you, you would need massive amounts of R&D to figure out the right way to do that, if that's even possible from a commercial use standpoint anyway. Like, I mean, maybe that's not even possible given current states of technology. Like, I I, I, I feel bad, I, particularly for the 19-year-old guy who's stuck with his father on this thing. Like, he is, you know, about as innocent a victim as there could be. Um, all of them in that way, you know, they, they don't deserve their fate. That's not what I'm suggesting. But, you know, these guys trying to just, listen, blue-collar ingenuity and certainly white-collar ingenuity, these are things that make the world go round. Uh, but we also have to live in a realistic place where taking on seriously from an engineering standpoint, from an architecture standpoint, from a fabrication standpoint, from an implementation standpoint, from a workflow, from a communication standpoint, these are all like what he's attempting or what they have been attempting, what they've been doing is extremely difficult, extremely difficult to do in a repetitive way over time. And just those lack, total lack of oversight, flouting of safety concerns, flouting of anything where an expert could have come in many experts would have needed to come in and really tighten up and button up that process if it could be buttoned up at all. Like, he rejected all of that. So it's like, you know, it's terrible what has happened to them. Absolutely terrible. But it is a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale about who has the comparative advantage, certainly in modes of transportation, in terms of enforcing human, uh, and rather in this particular case, public safety. Yeah, in in, in circumstances like that, Government oversight actually is a very, very important, very good thing 
which we should all be very, very grateful for, uh, for making things work in places where they do. Go to places on a more mundane way that don't have a strong, not really strong infrastructure, but don't have like the government plays no role in like how travel is conducted. They're chaotic fucking disasters. They're messes. Like you, that, that, this is, this is, this, this, like, <laughs> like proto and anarchist style of municipal planning. This is a superior alternative. I, I, no, like quite obviously it's not, you know, quite obviously it's not. So, um, this guy did the, uh, travel equivalent of making his own, doing his own research, building his own vessel, fabricating it. You know, with the, the in some certain cases, jerry rigging shit inside of it, and uh, it looks like he paid the price for it. it. Looks like he paid the price for it. So tragic, terrible, um, but uh, avoidable, super avoidable, unfortunately. And they didn't. Also, like, oh, look, I know you're not a scientist, but from your military training, you may know how. But I still don't know how the whole thing can compress if there is a leak. Uh, because it like, I mean, it's just think about it on a beer can, right? I mean, this is sort of a, a simpler way to explain it. If your beer can is full, right? If your beer can is full, and even if you're very heavy, now obviously if you're so heavy, this won't work. But the point being is, uh, if your beer can is full, most people could be able to stand on top of it at least for a second without it bursting, right? Now pop a hole in it and then stand on top and see what happens. The whole thing is going to shoot out. It's going to open. Dude, the amount of pressure... Understand something like from what I again, I'm just reading. I don't know what the fuck do I know about traveling on the floor bed of this of the ocean, but from what I understand, once you're at that level, once you're at like what was it, 12 or uh, 12 and a half or even 13,000 feet, the psi around you, the pounds per square inch that's essentially what they measure for your tire pressure is is like is like 6,000 psi in every single direction. Now, I guess if you're at the floor, it wouldn't be from the floor, but. Certainly from the top and all the sides, it'd be 6,000 PSI in every single direction. Dude, one small error in how that ship is constructed and sealed, anything, anything. And if that breaks, the whole shit is going to implode like instantly. I mean, the amount of weight sitting on that thing is fucking absurd. You have to have a, a ridiculously uh, sturdy tested um durable and perfectly constructed device in order to be able to absorb and maintain not, not just maintain uh hull integrity amidst the pressure but then to be able to move through it you know what i mean because you're, you're trying to find ways to either ascend if you need to or whatever uh and by the way that porthole that they had which was near the the toilet apparently listen to this that thing was only tested i mean i know they've been down a few times but that thing was, I should say, only certified to be able to withstand pressure up to 1,300 meters. Well, dude, like they went down, or at least ostensibly, they want to go down to 4,000. Now, again, I know they made that trip before, but I'm just saying, again, how much can you do this in a repetitive way? That's really the sort of the mark of safety and, and true ingenuity here. Um, it was only ever tested for 1,300, depth of 1,300 in the ocean. They wanted to go to 4,000, like... All it would take is one instantaneous, one one little error, and that's it. The whole ship is just going to get crushed. It's just, you know, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. The weight is extraordinary. Yeah. All right. 
I'm not sure what to say to this one. Not a question, Luke, but I kind of wish you'd talk more about your experience living abroad. I find it fascinating every time it comes up. I'm not sure what to tell you about it. I don't have that much great experience with at least not I mean, in my adulthood. I have a lot of experience traveling. I have a little bit less um, as a kid, you know, in India and then Doha and, and Qatar and then a little bit in Japan. That's really about it. Um, I don't have a whole lot there, but um, I will suspect, I do suspect that there's just no way I retire in the States. I just don't see how that's possible. Um, the question is where do you end up? That part I can't quite figure out, but yeah, I won't be here. There's just not good enough math. I mean, like the reality is I make a decent wage. I have a 401k. I have all that stuff. But even with all that money, you're probably going to have some kind of medical event post 60 that could be financially catastrophic in a country where if you don't have insurance, that will deplete all of your savings and then some. Um, obviously, cost of living here is tremendously high. Uh, if you want to send your kid to college, even if it goes to public education, that could be extremely expensive, especially if you're, if you're talking like University of Virginia level of schools in public. Like, there's a lot of places you can go to solve some of those problems that uh, are, are better suited for it. So, good question, Luke. Uh, all top contenders at lightweight are quickly approaching 35. Gaethje will be 35 in several months. Poirier will turn 35 in January. Oliveira and Dariush will be 35 next year. You bring up. You frequently bring up the stat that 35-plus-year-old fighters are 2-29 in title fights, and among them only Woodley was able to win in a title fight. With Makachev still being relatively young compared to them at 31, do you think he continues ruling the lightweight division with these contenders? And among the younger fighters who are currently ranked lower, who presents the biggest challenge to him? So um, I do think the answer is yes. Like I think he's already better than those guys, and then the fact that he's got the youth advantage only serves to cement his place at least temporarily. Uh, now I want to be clear about the 35 year old mark. Like, dude, two and 29 is a very interesting stat, and there's not nothing to that. It pretty clearly does show that the inexorable march of time has an effect on your competitive fortunes. But it's not like we don't, at least we don't know it to be like a hardcore delineator. Like, it's kind of funny that it, it, it reared its head in the way that it did. Even this past Friday when Pitbull fought Pitbull's 35, here he goes losing, you know, some seemingly out of nowhere. I'm just sort of pointing out with respect to this, 35 seems to be a very interesting place that you can begin to see some real competitive decline, but we don't know. People are going to break this rule. Like, there's nothing about the the number 35 that is written to the stars as, like, when everything begins to go poorly. It just seems like it's a decent frame of reference to, again, to kind of, like, chapterize people's competitive fortunes in their careers. So that's what 35 means. But, yeah, I mean, who do I see coming up at at, at 155 and challenging him? I mean, Saryukian's kind of interesting. Um if he can really work on his game a little bit, I just don't want him rushing up there, like calling up Chandler and stuff like that. Like, you know, we, 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 for the poll, I put up, who do you guys think is going to win Taporia or, or Josh Emmett. Now Emmett has nuclear punching power. Like the chances of him winning are not insignificant. I know from the odds perspective, Taporia is heavily favored, but still you're dealing with a very, very challenging opponent in Josh Emmett. But, like, look at where Taporia is. What is he, 26 as well? Something like that? Maybe maybe not even that much. How old is Ilya at this moment? I think he's... Let's see. Currently, Ilya Taporia stands at 26. 26. He was born in 1997. So the dude was born after my brother graduated high school. Okay? 
Um, at 26, look how developed he is. Already has a black belt, already has powerful striking, already has very good wrestling, already blends everything well, fights with aggression, does have some weaknesses, but you see what I'm saying? Like in terms of his development, how ready is his offense? How ready is his defense? How well mixed is it? How much does he understand assignments? How well can he adhere to a game plan even in difficult circumstances? Like look how far along he is. So Ryukian's got a few of those things at the same level, not like they're different weight classes. What I mean to say is in terms of like readiness for the rest of the division, he's got a lot of those things. He doesn't have a lot of the other ones. Like not yet. So it's like what I think is if Saryukin can take his time a little bit and then you can age Makachev to 33, 34, and that's when you really begin, you might begin to see some threats of some turnovers if he even fights that long. I guess we'll have to see how long. Um, I'm trying to see who else in the top 10 would even qualify as somebody you would take seriously as a threat to Makachev. Oliveira obviously would be the other one, that, but he's kind of already up there. You're talking about like the next stage. I still wouldn't look past Fazeev. Jalen Turner's kind of interesting. Ismagulov, if he comes back, might be interesting as well. But really, there's no one out there other than Saryukian and maybe again, Oliver. I put differently because he's been there such a long time. I'm talking young guys, right? And they're in their in their mid to late twenties, something like that. Yeah, Fazeev might be a little bit older too, but uh, it's still relatively new-ish in this division. They had the one setback against Gaethje, basically. I still, and well, yeah. A little bit more than that, but you get the idea. Um, yeah, no, there's no one really that kind of stands out and makes you think that like they're a shoe in for that. I can be quite sure. All right, let's do this one. If Volk finishes Yair within three rounds, do you think he has a stronger claim to an Islam rematch than Charles? If Volk finishes Yair within three rounds. Uh, no, he doesn't. Personally, I think Islam is just a bad style matchup for Charles, whilst Volk is a tougher style matchup for Islam. Um, okay, if Volk finishes here within three. I mean, I'll say this. I'll say this. I really feel like what Charles did to Benil Dariush is extremely impressive. Didn't think he could do it, and he did it, and you just really, really got... Dude, Benil Dariush is a very high-quality opponent, man. Like, my respect level for what Dariush can do, Dariush, Dariush, I'm not sure how you say it, but my respect level for what he is able to do, especially in mixing his game and how much good experience he has and how much he is willing to bite down on the mouthpiece when needed and how strategic he can be on the ground when needed, I, I mean, that is very impressive what he pulled off. Extremely, extremely impressive. You know... I would say that Volk would need to do something on par with that. Finishing Yair within three would be impressive, but not not for me to leapfrog. Now, I do take your point that I think Volk is a tough style matchup for Makachev in ways Oliveira is not styles make fights. But, you know, Oliveira could be a tough style matchup for Volk in ways that Makachev is not, right? So there's kind of there's all different ways that this could play out. But, I, 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 you know, he would really, really have to go in there and just humiliate Yair in order for me to be like, okay, now he really deserves a second crack at it. Because I know he's going to go to 155 in all likelihood. If he if he does win, he's probably going to go to 155, in which case it opens up some things. But, yeah, dude, what, what Charles turned in, pretty goddamn impressive. Pretty goddamn impressive. Here we go. 
All right, Luke, leftover question about Charles Oliveira. I'm curious about your thoughts about how he seems to get a, get away with insane levels of risk in his fighting style and still beat the best of the best consistently at 155. In any other sports, the best almost always end up developing a style to eliminate chance. Barcelona's tiki-taka football and maintaining possession, Floyd's boxing style, New England's offensive line, allowing Brady to sit in the pocket. The list goes on. That's not, I wouldn't call that defensive. Um, the last part, anyway. He just seems like a real outlier in this regard. Thanks for all the years of content. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, here's what my answer would be. is like, one, it's just, there's so much of it, right? Like, he's just constantly throwing you offense all the time. Standing up, he's throwing you offense. He's putting pressure on you. He's putting combinations together um, on the ground. He's constantly working. And that really is the, the, the major part to me. The reason why he's able to throw so much offense at you is because he does do it so much that he eventually does get into trouble. But part of the secret to his success is that he throws a lot of it at you and that it forces you to answer it before you can do anything else. And this takes time, right? So, for example, when he is doing De La Hiva or reverse De La Hiva, um, once he begins to invert and gets going, he is locking on to an attack. Someone tries to break it. They they peel a foot off. They put their shin out to the side. They crush that grip. He switches grips. Now he goes in underneath, right? So, like, once he begins to pull you into his octopus-like tentacles and he gets his offense going, it takes time for the other person to free themselves from this before they can even get offense going again. He's chaining things together. He's slightly altering position. He's advancing the attack. He's forcing them to answer. Just to deal with that, it takes time. And it takes, like, at a bare minimum, even if it doesn't take a huge amount off the clock, it nullifies the opponent's ability to even get into an offensive space. He's very good at that. Very good at that. Very good at drawing out punches. Very good at drawing out reactions. Very good at just getting guys to react to what he's doing and then locking them into this again I don't, i'm not sure what the word would be process this process by which they have to extricate themselves and then get going again um and that i think you know it, it, that is really truly a case of offense being your best defense you know you're just taking the fight to them and the other person's just trying to make sure that their grips are right that their balance is right that they're not giving up this position they're not planting their weight incorrectly blah 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 all that stuff I really believe that that has, um, and then the fact that he is so, his offense is so good everywhere. Also, he can finish from the back, right? Like he obviously has back attacks, so he's not limited in, in traditional boxer, wrestler, or like you know, grappler, kickboxer ways. He, uh, you know, so you know these weird, these weird like prototypes almost. He he has so much ready-made offense in so many different dimensions, and then when he locks you into it into this process, you know, whatever the word is, when he locks you into it, it just, the extraction uh, and separation and slowing all that down and pushing that away and negating it, he just, he really ties guys up. And then usually what he does is just beats them to it. Once he starts attacking from the back, it's a wrap, you know, like he eventually just wins that one out. We're talking about cases where they're able to escape, you know, or able to get away. Hold on, let me see this question. I asked a question a month ago about instances where you mended relationships, and you talked about one friend who's going away party didn't attend that could be mended. Okay, 
What I was really trying to understand was that in the times where friendships or different kinds of relationships were mended, how did you accomplish it? The times it did work out, how did you go about it? And, or what motivated you to repair them? Was there ever a situation where you felt like someone was being malicious, but it was a misunderstanding? And how do you, how did you navigate? I, I mean, it's not, it really isn't rocket science. Um, you just go talk to them. You just go talk to them. Like I, be an adult about it. Like, um, I think there's very little that has not been solved with a honest conversation that was probably well overdue for both parties. You can do a lot with that. Can't do everything. It won't fix all your problems. It won't mend every fence. But you'd be surprised what it might get done for you. You'd be surprised what dialogue does for you. You'd be surprised how much the other party in whatever dispute might be more willing to come to the table if they feel like they can get something out of that experience. Like, a lot of people are usually in these relationships, they're hurting, and there's different ways in which that hurt manifests, which can either be, you know, with, with, uh, they can be withdrawn, they can be angry, they could be, you know, you name it. But what they're usually wanting is some kind of way to just get back to what you had, some kind of way to feel better at a bare minimum. A conversation can't fix everything. Again, I'm not declaring to you like this will solve, this will, oh, it's magic. It's not, not nothing is magic. I'm just saying more often than not, both parties probably want to come to a place where they can understand one another better, heal better, um, stop being in the current situation that they're in and get to get to a more comfortable place. Like a good adult, non-shouty, not fuck you thing, but like a real honest conversation where you're willing to admit your role in your own misery as well as acknowledging someone else's and why it doesn't need to be this way. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. All right. Here we go. It's interesting that within roughly the last year, Ilya Toporia almost got finished by unranked lightweight Jai Herbert, and Volk almost beat current lightweight champ and arguable pound-for-pound number one Islam Makachev. However, if they both win their next fight, Toporia versus Volk will be one of the more compelling matchups in recent memory. Any thoughts on this? All right, so you're playing a little bit of MMA math on this one. Okay, so a couple of things. Um... Volk almost beat current lightweight champ Islam Makachev. Well, first of all, he didn't, and I didn't have him winning that one. I had Makachev winning, and I thought he deserved to win. But okay, it was close, is really your point. Um, and Taporia almost got finished by unranked Jai Herbert. Well, there is one commonality. Taporia was going up a weight class, and so was um, so was Volk. Okay, fair enough. But one, Volk is already a champion by this in this posited scenario, and the one you're talking about Taporia is not. Taporia is much younger, much less developed. So that's one problem with the argument. The other problem is I think he was giving up something like eight or nine inches of reach to Jai Herbert. It was a massive, massive reach disadvantage and height disadvantage. So it's not just navigating. We have, now you have to punch up when you're punching. You can't punch straight ahead or even down. You got to punch up. It's harder to do. Okay. And, and a little bit more taxing. And he got caught. You guys remember how he got caught by Jai Herbert? Jai Herbert, by the way, a very good fighter. Not like not some scrub. I realize he's not on the level of Makachev, but not some scrub. One of the problems with the striking of Ilya Taporia, there's many things I like about what he does, but it's not perfect. One of them is he tends to reach. You guys ever heard the expression, you reach, I teach, from boxing? But you can use it in a lot of different martial arts with a striking, where you need to have the ability to move underneath your feet. So if you take a big step, 
to try and reach someone, you might be able to reach them. But the problem is now you are, there's many problems, but now you can't really move. Now you are immobilized. Let me pull this out of the way. You are immobilized, right? So you have to kind of get your balance back to go back to your stance. Dude, that's an eternity in striking or boxing in particular. They'll light your ass on fire for it. You can't do that. Or at a bare minimum, if your feet are very far apart, it's very, very hard to get the balance you need to put weight on your front foot and maybe pivot out or pivot in, depending on which way you want to pivot. You're kind of stuck in that place. And uh, <clears throat> and so what ended up happening was he they, they clearly had game plan for it, and they knew that he was going to be outside. One of the things that Taporio likes to do is he likes to throw an overhand right and then a left hook to the body, and then he usually has some kind of combo where now he's moving into, into range on you, sometimes off the stance, which sometimes not, and he uses that overhand right to usually begin it. Um, or sometimes we'll do jab, overhand right, whatever. But the overhand right is a big, a big component in it. And they know that sometimes he reaches on it. You can just see it on tape. He still does it. I didn't do it as much in the Bryce Mitchell fight, so I think he's getting better about it. Um, but he has given up. Remember, <clears throat> Ilya Taporia has had a reach disadvantage in every single one of his UFC fights, including on Saturday. He always is the shorter man in that sense. So he throws this overhand right to try and close the distance and you know get a punch going. And uh, he reached. He took a huge step. And so what they, what Jai Herbert did was, as he he timed it right, Taporia takes the big step. He's now locked into this position, threw a head kick up real quick, and caught him right on the chin. He caught him. He caught him right in on the half beat, right? So never here on that rhythm, but he caught him there, right? He caught him right at the half point, and he, boom, he hit him. Now, that shot was incredible. But Taporia kind of sat to his rear end. His head flopped back, but he didn't go all the way flat to the canvas. He actually sat to his butt. I think that matters rather than getting your back flat on the canvas. Sits up for a single leg, runs him to the thing, gets on top for a little bit. He also got hit a little bit reaching again later on in that round. But by the second round, he switched it up big time. He was much better about pressure. He was much better about finding ways to get in. And that's how he eventually used the combo. I forget exactly what it was, but it was, uh, it was, it was, what was it? It was jab, hook, hook overhand right something like that or jab hook 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 right i can't remember i can't remember the exact details of it that's the one that he spun him around with so he was able to like correct for it very quickly so you know volk gives up reach and everything too but he's a more developed talent and you know it's a very different kind of opponent than what Taporia had to go up against it, it did spotlight some of Taporia's weaknesses but again i think if you look past the jai herbert fight especially in that bryce mitchell fight because a fair amount of that did take place on the feet. Granted, Bryce Mitchell's not Jai Herbert, but you don't see him reaching nearly as much. Reaches a little bit, but not nearly as much. I think he's going to begin to tighten it up. We're just talking about guys in two different stages of their career. And, you know, one when you're, when you're at the stage and you're as good as Taporia is, you can move a little faster to catch up with a guy. Like, Volk is not going to get much better at all than what he is now. He can get a little bit better, but not a whole lot better. I would still say that uh, Taporia could, at least in theory, get much better. So this is why. It's like if you can beat a guy like Josh Emmett and you've now got a guy like Volk, who'll be 34, I think 35 almost, now they're meeting at a more approximate point. Yeah, not too long ago, there was a little bit further of a distance between them. But I would be very cautious about looking at that Jai Herbert fight and thinking, oh, oh, Taporia, he gets lit, hit a lot. He does some things wrong that cause him problems, as I'm indicating. It's not the only thing he does, by the way, but the reaching on the 
right hand is a big one. Um, but I want, I cannot be clear. The tape at least seems to indicate he is aware of that and slowly trying to get that better. Uh, and I think it, there's some evidence that it already has. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, good question. Why was Strikeforce so successful while Bellator just could never take off? Has Coker just given up at a certain point? I don't know if Coker's given up, um, but yeah, there's a lot of differences, man. Number one, like, you know, Bellator has a bigger roster because there's more, there's just more MMA, there's more divisions. But I, I'm going to say that I think Strikeforce had more stars, uh, number one. But the biggest one beyond that and having more stars, two t TV was different. There was a clear appetite for MMA on network TV in ways, and then also just linear TV. Like, dude, like old Strike Force events used to do like eight hundred thousand on Showtime, and now they do like you know one fifty two, two fifty something like that. And that's partly Bellator is not Strike Force, but it's also partly like MMA is just in a different place than it was. TV's in a different place than it once was. But I think the biggest answer, if I could just be honest with you, is that the UFC is just much bigger now. the The UFC, the UFC that you see today is where it is in part not obviously you know, there's much more to this equation but you're seeing the ufc that absorbed strike force and they got all that talent that came with it they got verdum that came with it they got overeem that came with it they got or maybe overeem was gone but they got him later but they got um they've got luke rockhold with it they got cormier with it they got romero with it i mean the list went on and on and on they had so much Ty tyron woodley was on it Nate Marquardt was on it. I mean, I could just go, Jorge Masvidal was on it. Like, you can just go down the list of who they had. It was an a, a absurd, absurd talent roster that they were able to come over. Now, there was some doubt, obviously, at that time about how good they were. Jacare was over there. I mean, I could go on and on. There was so much good stuff happening over there. So there was this time when you could develop a roster with some real names on it that some people knew, and you could potentially make it really work. Again, not at the UFC level, but at a very respectable one. You know, yes, they have a. There was no 135 division for Bellator. Or sorry, for Strike Force at the time, there was no 145 pound division. Look at them now. So in that sense, Bellator is bigger, but the UFC is just much, much, much bigger now than it was in 2010 or nine or eight. They occupy a much bigger space. Inside combat sports, they have more fighters than they did then. They have more of the best fighters, I would argue, than they did then pre, you know, pre-strike force. They didn't have nearly as much of a lock on the talent as they do now. And more to the point, like they've just turned the MMA economy into the UFC economy. So there's just not a lot of extra space for anyone else. Like this is what I'm talking about. Like no one wants to see no one like we want to see a healthy, dominant brand leader in the sport. I think that's really quite natural and quite understandable. But there's really some trade-offs you have to begin to examine about, okay, how much better would the sport be if there was a little bit more promotional parity? Um, and, you know, listen, it would depend on the kinds of other promoters in the space. Like, that, even that is no guarantee. But I'm going to argue that, generally speaking, I think MMA would be in a better place, both in terms of how its fans were treated and how its fighters were treated, uh, if there was a little bit more promotional parity um, in the space and candidly i will tell you like i don't really know what's going to happen with bellator paramount it's got them up for sale i, I don't you know you, you heard um errol's report i can absolutely confirm liberty media was one i think i talked about it on this show that liberty media was part of it they're not the only ones um but pfl is certainly in that mix Dude, i, I kind of just selfishly just for mma's sake 
I kind of hope PFL does it. I don't know what Liberty would do with it if they bought it and where that would go. Maybe maybe that's good for it too. But there's like a part of me that's like, you know, UFC is like people are complaining, I think quite rightly, about the quality of the cards. And again, some of that is cyclical and some of that is, you know, maybe by 2024, first quarter, we're getting killer cards left and right. Like a lot of this is cyclical. But the point I'm trying to make is if you really actually want to get the best out of the UFC, you have to make them compete. You have to make them compete. That's when you get Dana counter-programming. That's when you get Dana being like thinking cleverly about what are some interesting names we could sign. That's when you see them really trying very hard. It just doesn't feel like they're trying very hard in part because they don't have to. They don't have to. Guys, I'm going to say this one more time. This should be fucking scary. This should be scary. It's scary to me. It's very scary to me that I don't think Bellator makes any money. I don't think PFL, I'm certain PFL doesn't make a dime and one doesn't make a dime. Now, that isn't to say that there couldn't be versions of those organizations that could. Bellator, I think, of the, all of them is the one that likeliest could because of the depth of their roster, because they can do million-dollar gates, because they have a big presence in Europe. They seem like there's something you can do there with it, but it, it should be alarming as shit that none of the major promoters basically make money, like profit. There's only one, like among major MMA promoters, only one makes profit. And they make a healthy profit, but they make profit. Like, that seems bad. That seems unsustainable. That seems like industry concentration. And when industry consolidates that way without ever having to, like, answer for any other additional market pressures, that's when they start turning the product into how much money can we make from this rather than how good of a product can we make. That's when the that's when that switch flips. Like the job of UFC is not to put on the best fights that people want to pay money to see. The job of UFC is to make WME money, and there is a massive difference in what that looks like when you think about one task versus the other. So you're asking like why Bellator can't get a footprint in, guys. Listen to me very clearly. There is no promoter today that's going to outcompete, or I should say, meaningfully compete in a way to change the industry. It can't happen. We're already locked in. It would take some kind of cataclysmic event for the UFC for or or short of government intervention, Ali Act MMA or whatever. Short of that, it would take catastrophe uh, in the industry on the UFC's part in order for them to lose position and market rank for other promoters to take over, because there's just no way that three other entities, KSW maybe is different, Cage Warriors, I'm not sure what the situation is, but in terms of the Bellators and the Ones and the PFLs, these fucking guys don't even make money, dude. They don't even make money. Like, that is profoundly worrisome. Um, so who can? You're asking, like, oh, why isn't Bellator like Strikeforce? Why isn't anyone like Strikeforce? Why isn't there any promoter out there able to capture the same kind of market share that Strikeforce had? That's the question. Not why Bellator can't do it. Why can't anyone do it? And Because of the way the market works, unless PFL can... If PFL bought Bellator, I think we're in a different place. But I don't even know if that's going to happen. It's fucking insane. Um, good question. What do you think about the frequency of accidental fatalities during military training? Too many of our service members are losing their lives on home soil. What were some of the risky activities you experienced during training? What can we do to protect them? I mean, listen, I, I got to be honest. I'm not saying that 
and listen when most of the time when you see these like for example like when you see like oh there was a death at paris island paris island is an island off the coast of south carolina that's where the original marine corps um uh, recruit training depot is it's where i went it's where that's where you go to become a marine now there's one now on the west coast it's been there for some time mcrd san diego but the original one the, the og one is paris island that's the one that i went to like dude i've you know like you hear about military you hear about deaths at paris island you know that the drill instructor did something they were not supposed to do like i you, there are situations that are you know obviously very very difficult but dude like how do you train this many guys for something this dangerous in dangerous conditions and you don't catch a few l's along the way i'm not here to say that the military couldn't do a better job in their individual circumstances especially again with with recruit deaths recruiter death excuse me with recruit deaths there's really no tolerance for it i'm not and a lot of those come from abuse like those are very easily solved problems but like how do you solve heat issues at itb i don't know how do you i mean how do you solve or mct how do you solve them i don't know i don't know i don't know how you do those I don't really know. I don't know how you train warfighters in freezing or, you know, 100 degree conditions to haul gear, to shoot rounds down range, to not sleep, to not eat, to do everything in the dark, you know, with ammunition. And I, I, I like these are dangerous jobs. I don't I'm not saying your question is an idol. I don't have a good sense about um, overall efforts within the military to to limit training casualties beyond existing protocol um but like i can just tell you like you know when there you like there's weather monitors about how much training can be done outside you know any any unit worth of shit is monitoring its weapons uh and weapons training weapons depots weapons uh like all about that is very tightly controlled who has ammunition when they have ammunition when they're allowed to use it everything is logged when you're in your artillery unit what did you fire how much ammunition did you go through even when you burn it you know what you're burning because it'll often burn some off at the end like how do you burn ammunition safely like there's a lot i mean you know these, these are dangerous jobs these are really really dangerous jobs so some of the stuff can be done better and again especially on the when you hear about deaths at various recruit depots those are really tragedies that easily could have been avoided but it's you know dangerous work leads to dangerous results i i it's not to say we shouldn't take those precautions seriously i'm not trying to be like the guy with ocean gate like in order to keep the deaths as low as you can you have to be on it you have to know the weather conditions you have to know who's got weaponry you have to have it all logged every 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 detail and the who's in the, who's in the convoy and who's driving who's the a driver where is everything accounted for what are we doing at this hour like every all of that has to be locked on what i'm saying is i don't know how much more locked on beyond those things and again knowing what safety protocol is proper training having experts on the field there is an armorer in charge of everything there is you know the gun line has uh, every single one of those guns has a social and, and ranking hierarchy that everyone has a job to do Everyone knows what the safety responsibilities are. There's training that's going into those job training uh, to for the MOS. There's just a lot of that's in play. It's just inherently beyond that. People get fucked up, man. People get fucked up. And also, you know, on the Marine Corps side, Marines do insane shit. You know, <laughs> like, it's hard to, I mean, they would warn us and they would go to 29 Palms. If you see a snake, don't pick it up and bite its head off. Because the story that we were told was that a guy, a Marine, tried to do that, pick up one of these poisonous snakes, tried to bite the head off, and when he was trying to bite the head off, it bit him on the tongue, and it was a whole thing, and, you know, 
don't don't do shit like that you know but there's only so much of that that can go into things um and the job is inherently dangerous as that i think they court-martialed that guy by the way but i just want to point out like even that you know i i got through six years no problem without any real serious injuries of any kind you know um we're talking about work that even as dangerous it is just to go back to the ocean gate thing Going to the bottom of the ocean is like inherently one of the most dangerous activities a human could possibly even engage in. You know, military training is definitely very dangerous, but orders of magnitude safer than that. And even that one is tightly re regulated, tightly controlled, you know, that kind of thing. Good question, I think. Uh, Luke, thoughts on Dana slash UFC potentially swooping in to purchase Bellator specifically to undermine PFL's growth goals. I believe that would be a very Dana move to make, not because Bellator has, at least in my opinion, save for very few exceptions like the Pitbull brothers, very much to offer the UFC, but pretty strictly because swallowing up even more talent would further limit PFL's potential and add risk to the acquisition of Francis. Uh, also, like in addition to like the Live Golf and PGA thing, like have you guys heard from antitrust experts? Every single one of those people that I read has said, that that deal is not going to get approved. If not here, certainly somewhere with similar regulatory agencies in Europe, like the, it's not going to, it's not going to work. It's not going to last. It's going to get shut down. I feel if the UFC or WME tried to purchase Bellator, I think that they would be inviting regulatory scrutiny that they don't want. And the lady who's currently at the FTC, the um, Lena, uh, Lena Khan, she is hard nosed about uh, market consolidation, breaking it up, stopping it when when doable um yeah i think they would be inviting regulatory scrutiny they don't want so i don't see that as likely i know that there's always their, their name was kind of slung around a little bit i don't you know and also if you're if you're the entity selling it if you're paramount you don't want to go through this whole process of trying to sell it go it goes to ufc or you know wme and then the deal gets nullified and you have to go back to the drawing board and i think for that reason paramount wouldn't do that either like there's I know what you're saying. I mean, dude, I, I will never forget looking at my phone. Was this 2011? Did I see it on my phone? Maybe it wasn't my phone or maybe it was my laptop. I don't remember that part, but I'll never forget this. I was actually in this room and I just come out of the shower and I saw the press release about the UFC purchasing Strike Force, Zufa, and I was fucking gobsmacked. I was more gobsmacked about that than I was about Pride because Pride had these Yakuza issues that kind of predated it. The Strike Force one kind of came out of nowhere. And then there was the famous interview with Ariel and Dana back when they were cool and explaining the whole thing. And I sat there just being like, holy shit, what is about to happen here? And I know that that purchase did invite some regulatory scrutiny from the FTC. They ultimately decided against moving forward with anything. But, you know, you're going you're gonna to now take away arguably the biggest roster of fighters outside of your own organization like you would have probably 90 percent of the world's best fighters if you did that they would be inviting regulatory scrutiny they don't want i don't buy that uh luke uh given that i'm a redhead with an aversion to sunlight what is one thing you'd prefer to change about yourself i mean i don't love the way i look <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's like a, like a particularly great way to look, you know, it's just my way. Uh, I would love to be, uh, you know, 
I mean, I'm happy with my height, six foot four. I'm pretty good with that. You know, we could be better, but not the end of the world. Um, yeah, I would love to like the way that I look because I don't. Uh, just being honest with you. Okay. Yeah, same thing. Ocean Gate submersible being lost, presumably at the bottom of the Atlantic. Yeah, just fucking terrible way to die. By the way, everyone talk, I said I think I said this earlier, like everyone's talking about um, you know, it's dark and whatnot. Again, if the whole thing got destroyed, then this is moot point. But if they were down there for any amount of time, I was trying to explain this to people again based on what I read, for whatever that's worth. Not only would it be like it'd be pitch black long before you even got to the bottom, but more than that, it would be freezing. It'd be freezing. The water down there is like at freezing temperatures or pretty close to it. Like it'd be insane how awful that would be. All right. But this question was as follows. I was watching part one of UFC journey on YouTube. And one thing stuck out to me. Toporia was honed in his ability. Excuse, was honed in on his ability to become the, the next UFC star. Do you see that mindset being an advantage or disadvantage? Uh, I mean, here's the thing. It's, it's definitely an advantage. I think for the right kind of guy, uh, I think a guy like Topuria, who is very talented, who also has a clear sense about how to build star power and celebrity, and understands that that's a a a, a uh, another another thing that needs to be maintained and monitored and grown on its own right, and both of those things working in concert to develop your overall business ends like izzy has put thought into it Tapuria has put thought into it i think a lot of guys do now not everyone does look at Jokic over in uh for the nba he plays with the denver nuggets he doesn't give a fuck about it he's got this accidental place he's ended up in by virtue of being like a really great player and then also like he doesn't care about any of that accoutrement or whatever and so that 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 weird juxtaposition has almost grown his profile as a consequence but i think in general you definitely want to have people who are good about both um you don't need to have be good at both, but it's better. But I'll just point out what you guys have seen are a lot of people who are very focused on this is what you put the mindset um, to become the next UFC star. There's a lot of guys who have a lot of focus on that and then not enough focus on building their game. And so, you know, like just having a focus on what you need to do to build your brand or become noteworthy or otherwise get attention. I don't think that's an idle thing, although I, I think mostly it's pretty settled. You need to be either be a champion or pretty close to it to to really matter with audiences, ex, you know, exceptions here or there. Um, but like plenty of people have a very clear sense about how to build their brand. Uh, they just don't have the record to do it, the fighting record. Taporia is so far on his way to put it all together. Right, He's doing something very, very special. Uh, let's see. Da, 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 da. Okay, last one on this, and then we'll go to the paid ones. Luke, I've really been trying to understand this downturn in matchmaking. I wonder if there isn't something to be said about the frequency which most fighters fight these days. Too many events and the roster having too many fighters are two other issues. I mean, the guys want to fight more. Most fighters I talk to want to fight three or four times a year, not one or two or two or three. I guess three would be good, but like most of them end up, most of them end up at two. Two is not enough, um, and they want more. Guys, I, I said this to BC. BC keeps saying this stuff like, um, how can it be that they're making this much money and the people have this many complaints? Guys, the two are related. They're not independent of one another. They're related. If, if there are matchmaking pressures, and again, matchmaking is already difficult to begin with, 
even when you have the best of circumstances. There's a lot of factors that can shake things up and make it very difficult for you. Not not least of which is that the fighters can decline any of these fights. Um, the reality is, you know, you're going to get uneven results, and again, cyclical results as well. We have to be very cognizant of that. But if you are building a product for maximum, like you're trying to just excavate as much money from this opportunity as possible rather than again white glove treating every single event you're going to get way more things to sell that are much lower quality but are still good enough more or less to keep the fan base at least for now seemingly engaged right you still have very good main events even on fight nights you still have pretty good co-mains even on fight nights right and then you have these pay-per-views that really nobody else could even do anything like that so, you know, there's still a lot of raw material to work with, but I just want to point out, like, the, they're not, they're not like, one is happening just, you can't believe it based on everything else, that they're, they're exactly related. It's not a question of, the question is not, is the UFC trying to build the best cards they can week in, week out? No, of course not. They're trying to build a calendar to make as much money as they can for WME. That's, that's the way that the business is run, and you might argue that's the way it should be run based on the way it's been constructed. Right? Um, this is where we are. All right. Let's take a look at some of these other questions that you guys put up here, and then we'll start going through them. All right. Kathleen asks, if the UFC was in the same position as the PGA, how would Dana handle the situation? What are the key differences between now the UFC structure versus the PGA? I'm not enough of a PGA expert to really give you a helpful answer there. I mean, it was years ago that the UFC partnered with Flash Entertainment, which was back through Abu Dhabi. I think they eventually purchased those shares back, but of course now they have the arrangement over there with the UAE to bring shows and everything else. Fight Island, we all know the stories. Uh, I, listen, I think the fight game, of all the places you're looking for sports purity and moral clarity, the fight game would be the very last one. I don't think any, and this is, I don't think this is in any way exclusive to UFC. I, if Depending on what the number was, I think they could buy out every promoter in the business, to be quite honest with you. Um, I don't think there's any promoter that would be averse to taking Saudi money. I mean, they might try and be clever about it. They might try and be, you know, more reserved than others. But this idea that, like, they're persona non grata, I mean, it, no one is going to accept them more than the fight game. Um, so I think Dana would do what every other promoter would do. I don't know if that is exactly what you're asking, but because there's really no other competing entity out there that's like, taking or putting more money in and taking away elite guys in the way that live was at least to a degree um but if it, if it was like a question of like would the ufc accept saudi money i mean I, to an extent i think it might be inevitable uh extra 60 second break between rounds pros and cons uh pros fighters would be refreshed and would ideally have more energy they would be able to recover more from damage which might mean you get longer fights actually um and you would get longer fights no matter what because you're adding the extra hour or the extra minute in the breaks. But then you would also might get more resilient fighters and you'd probably get more brain damage as well. I mean, there's a reason why the breaks should be shorter. So you might get something of a longer product. I don't know if you're going to get a better product. Uh, okay. Listen, I didn't put the, I mean, okay. The right wing or politically challenged part of your audience seemed pretty upset at you last week. Why did you think they still bothered to tune in if they disagree with you much? Have a good one. I don't know. I don't know. I I, uh, I didn't see that they complained. I don't go through every comment on every post. What was it? Was it? I mean, I can't. Was it because I liked Spider Man or some shit? Or someone asked a ridiculous question about white supremacy. I gave some kind of answer there. I don't really know. I don't know what it was. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, listen. 
people are allowed to tune in for whatever reason they want and including if they disagree with me in fact i don't i'm not like so foolish as to imagine that everyone tunes in all the time to hear opinions that they love which i think is part of it i mean i think having an audience that pushes back is whether it's on political lines or others is in general totally fine and frankly like i get it i understand that that they would want to do that and i um yeah, I accept that. I accept that. And I also accept that like there's going to be people who don't see eye to eye with me politically who might be acting in bad faith and there's nothing I can do about that. But there might be other ones who are not who, um, you know, I don't believe that there is going to be an audience of people that I'm going to be able in through MMA to convince of my worldview. In fact, I think it's going to be very difficult. But I think that there's a lot of those people, from what I can tell, that don't get exposed to a lot of uh, different ideas or people with different ways of looking at things when they're actual MMA fans. And so I would rather, I think, I think I serve a bit of a more valuable role, not so much in how much can I convince people who don't agree with me, but I at least make them um, aware of um, alternative viewpoints from people who participate in the community. Everyone in the community is, you know, very much in lockstep with one another and I am not. And on some ways that puts me on the outside looking in for bad way, bad reasons. On other ways it puts me on the outside looking in for good reasons. And I think um, it will depend on your perspective, whether those are good or bad in, in your particular case, but I'd rather have some utility as exposing people to views or ideas they would otherwise not be accustomed to hearing in the normal course of their day and hope that that has some value down the road. But I don't imagine that I'm going to get up on here and like convince people who don't share my political worldview that every time um, they're going to come around to what I have to say. I just, that, that seems naive and unrealistic. Um, but as to the particular dimensions of what they're upset about this time, I don't know. Luke, I'm visiting New York solo in a week. Any food recommendations? Jesus, I'm so out of date on New York. Um, on like the good places to eat. And any must-do things outside the standard places, any tips appreciated too. Boy, now you guys are asking me to do this on New York. Um, dude, my recommendations on New York would be terrible. I, I only go based on, oh, you know what? It's the one I've recommended before. There's a place called Ja-Ja-Ja, J-A-J-A-J-A, Ja-Ja-Ja, but it's, of course, pronounced Ha-Ha-Ha. It's a vegan Mexican place, I think, near like Grand and Clinton, close to that. That is fucking amazing amazing i'm not one of these people that's like well, vegan food is just as good it's not normally just as good in this particular case it's just as good it's ridiculous so go check that out is there an mma on point equivalent for boxing i'm trying to get my boxing knowledge on par with my mma knowledge how did you fill in the gaps you it takes time uh, i don't think there is a boxing equivalent uh, there is uh, rummy's corner which is very different because that's a little more the history of boxing than it is current events tied to history it's not the same there's really no equivalent but rummy's corner is a good place to get some inf good information about boxing in particular he did a series on every major 90s heavyweight fight that was amazing amazing piece of work that he put together so you can go check that out but no there really is no mma equivalent or a, a boxing equivalent guys the really the only reality is you just this is why like you can't just manufacture Again, I don't think I have expertise in boxing, but to the extent that I've got any information, you can't just manufacture it. It takes month after month of covering current events. And then when those current events are going on, you have to go back and fill in the gaps as best you can all the way through. And that just takes years of time. There's no, there's no shortcut. 
With the McGregor fight seemingly all but certain to fall through, what do you think is next for Chandler? Dude, who the fuck knows? Thanks as all your time on Thursdays. Man, what a question. <laughs> what a question. What is Chandler going to do? I do not know. Maybe he gets the winner of Gaethje versus Poirier. Um, they run that one back in another direction. Maybe he gets Charles Oliveira again. Uh, Dariush. I don't know. I don't know. There are some good possibilities for him, but like the payday that he would have had with Connor, it would have been astronomically high relative to what he'll get in any other place. Um, so the answer is whatever it is, it's going to be a downgrade. Whatever it is, will be a downgrade. Dude. I mean, they, they like, again, like they're just trying to hurry things through. So they made this deal with Connor to be on the show. I don't even know like how much he's really even there. You know, he shows up, like, from what I can tell, with suits on, you know, not even, like, in the corner of these guys. And, uh, and again, the whole thing about, like, veterans versus newbies, the veterans should win more, so I don't hold that against them. But they didn't have a deal for a fight in place when they made the show. There was no deal. They just made the show, made him face off with no deal. It's like, oh, we're going to announce these fights that haven't been signed yet. Like, some of that might go through. It might probably won't in many cases. Here's another example that they just rushed it out because they needed to get it out, I guess. And it just wasn't ready for anything else. And now Chandler just goes back to every, I mean, it's not, again, I'm not like deciphering something from the, you know, the Rosetta stone, like look at who's on there and look at what fights will be available. Those are the same ones. It just goes back to being what it was. If Volk beats Yair, him versus Alos for number one contender, I wouldn't hate that. I still think that Oliveira earned a fight against Makachev again, but I wouldn't hate that fight. I think Volk versus Oliveira would be one of the more interesting fights you could make in the sport, right? Different body types, different sensibilities. One guy is much more defensively sound and then sort of like pours it on over time through these like crazy adjustments. Another guy is very straightforward in your face, technical, but in your face just brings the offense right to you. That would be a fun one. That'd be a really fun one. With almost no heat at 205, did the UFC miss a great opportunity to have their own Grand Prix? The division has no heat after the Jan Mega Mid draw. I wouldn't mind a mini tournament. I think they got to do something to shake up 205. That would that, that is hardly the worst idea. I, I actually like that one a lot. I really do. I was recently let go from my first media job covering the NFL. Oh, that sucks. On an editorial and writing staff, suggestions on ways to pad my resume and improve my resume between jobs. Thank you in advance, Luke. Man. Boys and girls, I will tell you something. It's a it's a dark time for media. It's a dark time for media for a couple of reasons. One, all those we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the vices, the Vox Medias, the BuzzFeeds, all these entities, they all have come crashing back down to earth, right? I mean, just this is the reality. It's like in the post, like post 2008 into the 2010s, there were just all these venture capital firms that were willing to dump quite literally billions into the vices and the voxes and everybody else. And so there was plentiful jobs everywhere, all of a sudden growing day over day, week over week, month over month for a time anyway, year over year. And that intersected with this giant growth of sports media rights where this, this is, this is business is getting bigger and bigger. It's more and more money. It's going to be on these things. And now you have two factors that's bringing that all back to earth. All of that VC money 
Um, like for example, um, so Vox Media uh, had this back end, their, their their CMS. Uh, I forget what it's called, Chorus. I think it was called. They, there was this thing they spent, dude. They spent millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars because you couldn't just be a media company in the 2010s. You had to be a media company that could sell media technology. It was what wasn't one wasn't enough, and so and it wasn't just a Vox Media thing. Like BuzzFeed tried all this, and Vice too. Like everyone tried to do this new thing. They all ended up failing. Right, but on the Vox Media side, it's the only one I know. I'm not even saying like I could have done better. Like certainly, I have no capacity to have judged these things better. I'm just pointing out, do they spent like tens of millions of trying to launch Chorus and make it a thing, only to eventually realize that they should just use WordPress on the back end, which other places have been using before, which Chorus is owned by Google. And I bring this all up to say like all this money was dumped in. All of these ideas were espoused about like we're going to be a media technology company. We're going to do all the stuff on, on the vices, on the voxes, on the BuzzFeeds, all of, all of those groups. And it all ended up being just bullshit. It was all bullshit. Like they, their products didn't work. They couldn't make money from them. The only real way to make money was from advertising. And there's some other things too, some media rights deals in certain other places. But like all those big grand ideas they had all came crashing back down to earth. So that came crashing back down to earth. All of the ideas behind what, what those new media companies would represent went back down to earth. And then on top of it, you have all of this turmoil where these media rights fees are going up and up and up and up. And there's a question about as media sort of transitions to TV, to streaming, whether there's enough of an audience and enough money to pay for them anymore. So like sports still is very valuable for all these entities because it still is somewhat DVR proof or at a bare minimum just capable of keeping people on the platform for the longest amount of time. So in that sense, these jobs are still valuable. They, they can do a lot. But, you know, you, you look now here in D.C., they launched Monumental Sports Network and there's other, other markets where now the team owns the media network. Like, what kind of coverage? Like, dude, Monumental Sports Network owns, they used to be NB Sports Washington, now it's Monumental Sports Network. They traded Bradley Beal. There hasn't been any coverage of it. They don't have to do it. So, like, these jobs have just changed in profound ways where there's this massive hiring spree for this growing field and it's just shrinking in every possible way. So the first thing you need to recognize is that number one is that number two, you might end up having to take work that is like for a team or for a media company that owns a team because there's just no other work to get in certain cases. And then I think the last thing I'd say is this is the most important part is dude, you need to do as you need to show like, you need to be able to produce content that you can show to people that's like, this content works. I can prove that it works. Whether it's social content, whether it's YouTube content, whether whatever, it's written kind of coverage, whatever. And you need to put that into action on your time, on your downtime. Like, again, I don't know exactly what you did for the NFL for writing, but like, if it was me, like what, what content works for me? So that clip that I pulled from my Izzy breakdown, or actually Othello pulled it, so shouts to Othello. He pulled that Izzy clip, the one I had from my breakdown with Izzy, where I, I show Izzy's eyes downrange. Guys, posted it on TikTok, 6.1 million views. Posted it on YouTube. I'll post it on YouTube. It did 1.7 million views. Posted it on Twitter, did 2 million views. Posted it on Instagram. It went viral not once, but twice on its own. This just this past week, I had added in one week, I added 12,000 new followers from one clip that went viral again without me putting a dime into it. Like you have to be able to show content that not necessarily can do all that per se, or maybe you can do even more, but 
it proves that it works. Like here, I can prove that I can do this. And you need to have the skills necessary to show that it works and everything else. Like what can you do in your off time? Do the, do stuff that shows proof of concept that people are going to want to see. That's what I would say. If I'm look like if you're looking to run a YouTube channel, what would you need? You need someone who could do thumbnails, video editor, right? The, these kinds of things for, uh, for a big channel anyway, for a company. You have to be able to prove you can do them and not just make them look pretty, but make them count. You have to make them count. That's just on the social side. There's a million other ways to make that work. But, you know, a lot of people just want to make work that doesn't generate attention. And some of the very best work doesn't generate attention, but that ain't going to generate you a job. You need to have work that like I can take what you do and I can implement it right now and the value add is immediate. So you need to figure out what that is in your line of work. I don't know if this is a hefty donation or not. It might be. I don't know what this symbol is, unfortunately. Luke, uh, big fan. Any MMA UFC book recommendations? Yeah, sure. What are your views on the International Fight Week card? International Fight Week card is a good card, not a great card. It is my first UFC live event in the U.S. I was at 289 Abu Dhabi. What should I expect overall at the T-Mobile Arena? T-Mobile Arena is a very nice arena, very easy to get to. It's in between New York, New York, and what used to be the Monte Carlo, which is now the Park MGM. I think it's what it's called, Park MGM. Uh, it's right in between there, Toshiba Plaza, easy to get to. There's restaurants there. There's all kinds. I mean, you're right in Las Vegas on the strip. There's tons of shit to see and stay at, but you can stay, you can stay at excalibur which is nubs but you can stay at mandalay and then walk you can stay at mgm and walk across you can i mean it's just it's it's a great it's a great place easy to get to easy to get around so that part is great um you're asking what else oh books big john's book let's get it on i think is a really important one a fighter's heart a fighter's mind by sam sheridan there's a couple of good ones you could read um and then again the judo book that i really love falling hard i think would be great as well Luke, in honor of Father's Day this past week, who are your candidates for great dads in MMA? My votes would be Cheeto and probably Holloway. Definitely Cheeto. Definitely Holloway. Um, I mean, I think all these, the vast majority of these guys are doing their best. Great dads? I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I'm not around them the vast majority of the time. But yeah, Holloway seems like a good one. That's a great, that's a weird question. Uh, Dana said he can make a bout between Musk and Zuckerberg in the UFC. Do you have our main event for UFC? I cannot. I mean, I get the level of interest in like joking about this. I cannot believe. Please stop encouraging these two fucking zeros into doing this. Like, you know, and Mark Zuckerberg wants so badly to be a member of the MMA community. And here's, boy, you know what? Like you wonder, you know, you always wonder. It's like, how can like disreputable people find their way into the martial arts community i'll tell you how it's because none of you fucks exercise any discretion about who you let in the door that's how like i'm not comparing him to some kind of you know uh street criminal or you know abuser of women or something like that that's not what i'm saying although they let those people in the door too like martial arts has this thing where it's like you know everyone we want everyone to come on in, everyone to be a part of this man nah Mm -mm. no you don't no you don't that's how you get the weirdos at the gym that's how you get people that you don't like at the gym that's how you get people into like bought into weird power structures and then ultimately made to do things they don't want to do like there's that attitude about like everyone should be able to welcome in the door no you fuckers need to be way more selective and here is a perfect case of a tech oligarch who does all the shit that again speaking of the 
portion of the audience that doesn't like my political views, you guys won't stop talking about how bad big tech is for your political interests. And at the same fucking time, bringing in a tech oligarch like this who has done any number of things to fuck that up for you, for both sides, but to fuck that up for you. And you got the goddamn tamer beyond any number of other things you could bring up related to Facebook's role in uh, human rights abuses, um, fraudulent elections. I mean, I could go on and on about that. And they're just going to be like, yeah, let him on in because he's famous and rich. Dude, get the fuck out of here. And Elon Musk looks like a bag of milk with a fucking apartheid head sticking on top. I mean, please get the fuck out of here with him talking about all that shit. That guy can't even touch his fucking toes. And he's out there trolling everyone about a potential cage fight. Musk would be, or excuse me, what's his face? Zuck would beat his ass, but he's just a fucking nerd. It's just two nerds fighting. What's that meme? I think that the meme is gay nerds. I don't want to bring that up because that's, I think, uh, you know, that's just turning into a slur. So we'll just say two nerds fighting. Two nerds fighting. A famous thumbnail. Two nerds fighting. That's what this is. Like, I mean, and we're going to sit here and dress this up. The thing that just drives me up the goddamn wall is how much shit the right wing side of this sport talks about how they can't stand what the what the elites of this country are doing to us. And then the fucking first thing they do is invite exactly the kind of creep that they don't like, which for good reason, I share that opinion. But in this particular case, they'll just look the other way because he also likes fights. What fucking hypocrites you are. What profoundly unserious people you are about your views. Get the fuck out of here. And again, I have finally figured out, I have figured out how we get all of these turds into this community. And it's because no one stops them at the door. That's, yeah, come on in. What, you got money and you're famous? All of a sudden, we like you now. Yay! Because he likes fights. Get the fuck out of here. Please, please. You can't be taken seriously for two seconds about your views on politics and the role that big tech plays in, in influencing it. And then, and then try and sit here and be like, yeah, we should welcome him in. Pick one. Pick one. We should welcome everyone in or you actually believe the things you say you believe. You can't have both. You cannot have both. Pick one. Ugh. Grasso is being, I love this dude. Look at look at this. The Dana White with the dashiki on. Grasso is being overlooked because of her losses. She was much better on the feet than Val. It's not talked about. The question is, could she win that way the entire time? Because that's not how she won. Also, I think you're overstating the, the case a little bit there. She was a lot on the outside too. It wasn't like she was lighting up Shevchenko. Look, I know you're a scientist, but from your military training, you may know how, but I still don't know how the whole thing can compress. We've been over this one. No scientist nor military engineer, but it's not really complicated. Every piece of the, again, every piece of the structure needs to be properly supported for the stress being applied to it. If you puncture that in any kind of way or that hull integrity is damaged and now it can't hold up in the same way, everything just comes shooting Part. it's yeah is Chandler still with ATT he was never with ATT not that I'm aware of he always had a, he has his own gym in Tennessee and he was with Black Zillions and then uh Kill Cliff I still think he is with Kill Cliff but not on a, like he only like moonlights down there lol Dana we don't do gimmick fights a white wants to get a Fury versus Jones hybrid fight done and it's talking about putting together Zuckerberg versus Musk yeah I know I mean this is what I mean like with any promoter it ain't just Dana 
It ain't just Dana with any promoter. There's just going to be what they say, and then there's going to be what they do, and it doesn't matter any of the first part. Only matters the second. And even when they say stuff in the first part, you have to double check it. Period. Period. All right. Uh, are you a fan of uh, cachapas or arepas? Uh, I like arepas. I've never had a cachapas. I know those are more Venezuelan foods, right, because I never had one. But I've been trying different South American cuisine all week. Actually, you know what I had just before today's show? I had a baleada, which I think is either Guatemalan or Salvadorian. Uh, it was amazing. It's like this sort of soft dough. And then there's like this kind of um, like cotija cheese in the middle. And then there's avocado, beans, egg. It was awesome. It was really good. From uh, Albar Espinosa. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. And then here we go from Arab Bay Area. With one potentially doing an event in Qatar or Qatar, what's the deal with Arab countries being heavily involved in MMA, UFC and UAE, PFL and Saudi and the above? Yeah, these are governments that um, in many cases obviously benefit from oil wealth. Uh, and then more to the point, they use sports as a way to... Uh, cover for their human rights abuses they sports washing is big now also obviously the middle east has a relationship to combative sports historically although i, I talked about this on that Jose mma podcast you look at the iranians and combat sports and they obviously have a very decorated history but yeah it's just because it's a great way to attract tourism make people talk about anything other than how they treat people blah 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 you know um, I was talking with someone, a woman, a friend of mine, who is trying to negotiate a contract for an event that's supposed to take place in Saudi Arabia, and they have to go through the contract, you know, per standard rules, you know, in-house attorneys looking over everything. All of the provisions require at the event that the man, like men, men must be the ones doing this, women cannot do this, women cannot do this, women cannot do this, like all of the provisions put that into into play uh, right away um yeah pretty gross pretty gross do you think a pfl to ufc move for larissa pacheco would shake up women's bantamweight provided she could make it uh, uh provided she could make it consistently sure i think she'd be a valuable asset yes given the increase in competition how do you see umar doing against Corey? Really just comes down to, I think, on the feet, I think he can hang with Corey, but I don't think it's going to be his best way of getting the job done. It really seems to me control um, knee shell, or I should say leg shelving, knee, leg wraps, um, rides from Turtle are going to be really, really critical for him. Uh, so I think he can make a huge jump here because I don't think he can, on the just striker versus striker, striker I would pick Sanhagen. But fighter versus fighter is a different scenario. True or false? Spence beats Crawford by decision. I have been a Spence guy all this time, and now I'm not sure. So I'll say yes. I'll say true. Volk stops Yair Rodriguez. I'll say false. Jones stops Miocic in the second round in NYC. True. Canelo versus Benavidez never happens. Ooh. False. I'll say false on that one. As a connoisseur of tattoos, uh, I don't know if that's quite the right word. Uh, what's your thoughts on Japanese style? Where to get inspiration from? How to best come up with it? Yeah, the Japanese style is my favorite style, even though I don't have any Japanese tattoos yet. The plan is to get this entire chest piece and then arm all done Japanese style. Uh, it's my favorite style. I love it uh, for any number of reasons. Um, I, this is true of American traditional as well, that 
um, the Japanese style both tells a story to a Westerner. It seems exotic. It is more art than it is tattoo, right? It is body art in a much more declarative way. It's a, it's a narrative. It's a, it's the story of someone's uh, life, or it's supposed to be a story of someone's, uh, uh, not the entire thing, but a part of their life. Um, but more to the point, it's just beautiful. It is decorative. It is everything is harmonious. The color pat palette works really well. Um, it covers long shapes more nimbly than other styles. Styles, uh, and the depth of the of not just the art of the tattoo itself, but the depth of the artwork of the symbolism of the meanings. It's it's it's. I have a. I've been reading a whole book on it. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. Japanese tattoos. Um, you just can't believe the range of detail in this thing. I mean, it just goes on and on with what these symbols are, what they mean, in what location, how they came to be, why they are what they are. It's just an absolutely perfect, like American tattooing. Um, I love American tattooing. I have American traditional tattoos on me, right? But, um, American traditional tattooing, and this is true of Japanese tattooing in Japan, but what I mean to say is it's very like, it's, you know, this is less true these days, but for a long time, it's been associated almost like with the biker kind of idealized image of a person. Whereas to me, Japanese tattooing felt much more um, calm, refined, um, less angry, less, less about skulls. Although there is guys getting their heads cut off on some of this stuff, but in general, just less about the taboo or less about the alternative elements of society and more about um if not mainstream certainly just more peaceful almost in a way uh even though some of those stories can be stories about war about conquest about you name it but it, there there is a the, the 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 style overall itself just seems to be much more drawn in a artistic direction direction versus uh, some, sometimes American tattooing feels like it's just a artistic representation of an American ethos, which also is good, but a little one note for me over time. Um, let's see. Almost done with these. Is Benil at the end of his prime? He's 34 and said his eyes could see, but his body is a step behind. Yeah, I think he's getting to the, I think he's starting to get to the end of it. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Um, thoughts on the five people who pair? Yeah, we've been over this a little bit already. I don't have anything else. Oh, the Coast Guard just confirmed. Oh, what did they say? Hold on, let's see. Did they confirm? Ocean Gate says all aboard Titanic submersible have sadly been lost. Yeah, fucking a. That's terrible. That's terrible. Um. <sighs> What can you say? A very, very, very foolish thing they were attempting that they should not have done. But, of course, that doesn't mean they deserve to die. Uh, why is it that Charles shows the uh, offense heavy defense, light Muay Thai plus BJJ shootbox style, but none of the Cordero guys do even though he's that lineage? Because they're not as skilled. It's not a style question as much as it's a skill question that I mean, he can exemplify the style by virtue of what he does, but it's a skill question. What's the most impressive career comeback in MMA off the top of your head? Again, the Lesnar one over Carwin's pretty good. Um, 
Frankie Edgar against Frankie Edgar against Maynard is probably the best one. That's probably the best one. Uh, and that, that took several fights, obviously, but you get the idea. Operation Black Operations. Yeah, boy, that Tito Ortiz movie. Operation Black Operations. Rank these guests on most likely to least likely to happen for RSD. Connor, Dana, Colby, Jones. Boy, you can put them all at unlikely. <laughs> you could put them all. You could put them all. There's just no chance any of those happen. Jones would have to reach out to me and apologize. That's never going to happen. Colby, we're just not going to book. Dana would never say yes, and Connor would never say yes. So, like, that's just not going to happen. That's just not going to happen. Big thanks to you, Othello and Ant, for my favorite Thursday show. Captain V can F off, though. Captain, I don't know who that is. Is that somebody just talking a bunch of shit? Congrats. We could grow a migrant vessel sank near Greece. 100 dead, 500 missing. Jesus Christ. They were seeking better life. Those billionaires who died in the sub were seeking what? Thrill? Thrill, yeah, dude. Like you hear all these migrant vessels, like from Cuba to Florida, from you know parts of Africa through the Mediterranean, trying to get over to you know Greece or whatever, Italy, whatever. Um, just terrible ways to try and get through life. Difficult as shit. But you know, listen, no one's got sympathy for the billionaire, least of all me. But like, they, you know, they didn't deserve like deserve to die. They certainly engaged in activity that was risky beyond any level of advisement but um you know deserve to die that's a little much took a tough loss to saturday any chance you'd ever do paid fan tape study you're humble about your breakdowns but they are top notch you know what i've had a it's funny man i said i was never going to do it and then i've been doing it recently i've had a bunch of fighters reach out recently um are any of them in the ufc currently no no um but I've had several, several fighters reach out in the last couple of months asking for breakdowns. And all this time I said I would decline it. Um, I probably will. If I pro- if you don't fight in the UFC, I'd be happy to take a look. Uh, listen, email me. Email this converse- email me based off this conversation. Note that you put it in there and uh, send me some tape. I'll take a look at it. Send me some tape. I'll take a look at it. Because I don't want to do it for, like, it'd be weird to be like, oh, here's... I came up with some kind of game plan. So a fighter uses it. If they lose, that's bad for me. If they win, I don't want to be in. I don't want to have that role in their life. But if someone doesn't compete in the UFC, I don't necessarily with the problem. You know, and I, you know, when I say UFC. I mean like elite level MMA. So you know, which they don't need my help anyway. So with the high, with the amount of high level prime footballers moving to Saudi this summer, do you see an issue being created that needs official intervention? Um, you can do, yeah, I do. I think it'd be really bad to just let Saudi Arabia and basically the government, the sovereign fund essentially pick off the very best players in the world. Now let's not overstate things. I think Di Maria is not going to go there. I think he's going to head to Porto. I think there's a little bit of a question about that. Conte, I think is going down there, right? N'Golo Conte and, uh, Messi avoided it. So we're not really in this terrible scenario yet. But, like, there needs to be some kind of a salary cap um, or some other kind of system that limits the capacity to just dump wealth. And and I, I don't realize I'm saying this as a Madrid fan. There's going to be people being like, fuck you, guy. Like, you benefit from the system. Yeah, fair enough. I don't know what the, what the best answer is. I'm just saying a world in which a dictatorship based off of oil money can come and then, in theory, just pick off whoever they want. That doesn't seem great for the sport. 
doesn't seem great. What can when can we expect a Zuck versus Elon extra credit? I'd rather, in the words of Patton Oswald, I'd rather get fucked to death by an eight-dicked walrus before I do anything like that. I can you imagine? It's just I'd rather die. All right, last but not least, if you were somehow invited or had the opportunity to go on a submersible to explore the Titanic years back, would you have gone? Fuck no. Dude, I, can, I don't even know if I could, I could sit in that thing as big as I am. Like, that's just, it's just tiny little, like, like, construction tube that this guy had. You know what I mean? Like, this drainage pipe. They, they, they were, these fucking guys were sitting in a drainage pipe doing this. Like, no, I'm not getting in that shit. Not for 250 grand, not for five grand, nothing. Zip. All right. So we had 1,100 votes on the. Let's look at the results. 1,100 votes. 82% said Taporia is going to win this weekend. 18% said Emmett. I will tell you, for me personally, I think that Taporia will win, but I think he might get lit up a little bit early. He makes the adjustments. He's been better about it recently, as we indicated, but. I think he'll get it done, uh, especially off the body punching. The left hook to the body, I think the uppercut, the uppercut of Taporia is going to be very, very valuable here. All right, last but not least, here we go. Why most combat athletes, specifically MMA, peak around 30-plus years? Now, the sports is roughly 25 to 30 because they start later. In most sports, you're not forbidden by the government from participating in a pro or in an established elite contest until you're 18. It is that way in MMA, at least here, right? They start later and a lot of them are starting even later than that and a lot of them are starting from other sports like everything just gets pushed back a little while away that's all all right thank you boys and girls greatly appreciated hey fun one here today thumbs up on this as you guys know we'll get the podcast up we'll get the thumbnail changed all that good stuff if i told you about the tape study email me luke thomas news at gmail.com and uh yeah we're out of here for now thank you guys so much um I should have a breakdown for the main event for UFC on Fox 5. Ready for you guys on YouTube by Monday. So fingers crossed on that. We'll see how that goes. Should be fun. Yeah? All right. Thank you guys for watching. Until next time. Uh, and if you're mad at my views, just uh, stay angry, I guess. Right? Stay for